the Pariah Podcast, written and read by me, the author, Philip Norval Joe Carroll. This is episode 14, A Joke Between Friends. Of all the classes each corps would attend over the next year, Keo's corps began with creature empathy, and he couldn't have been happier. Creature identification and differentiation, creature health and food preferences would all come later in the year. Right then, by learning more about how the special empathic bond occurs and develops between a creature and its handler, he hoped he would better understand why he was so different than all the other trainees and had come upon his empathic skills at such a young age. The Corps virtually buzzed with excitement on the first morning of the specialized training. A whole week of nothing but military drill and physical exercise had become tedious at best. The trainees whispered among themselves as they waited for their instructor. Keogh knew Lieutenant Gorley would be apoplectic if he heard the slightest noise from them inside a classroom, but allowing the others to vent some of their energy seemed like it was worth the risk. Animal stalls surrounded the wooden class building, with only windows opening directly into the pens. The wind passing through filled the room with the rich musk of living creatures. While some of the students complained and pinched their noses, Keel felt pleasantly nostalgic for his faraway home and its barns and fields. Sergeant Brakira Nightsong entered from one of the animal stalls on the right side of the front of the classroom. A tall woman, strikingly beautiful with long yet curly hair, Her broad black eyes shone knowingly from a deeply tanned face, darker than any Keo had ever seen. Her long and refined features led most of the class, and otherwise, to speculate that she had elven blood and maybe came from the heights of the impassable mountains. As Keo told Morden Farnding, he didn't believe in elves, but this woman's unusual appearance made him reconsider his doubts. Sergeant Nightsong's exotic accent spiced her words with a tantalizing flavor, though it also overwhelmed and clouded their meaning. "'Listen to my voice and not my words,' she said. "'Hear my inflection, not my pronunciation, and discover my intention. Finally, seek to understand me as a whole person, not as your instructor or as a mere storyteller. Seek to understand me as someone who has thoughts,' desires and emotions, just as you do. This will bring you clearer, deeper understanding. She took a book from the table and said, I am going to read you a story. Listen with your ears, but also with your mind and heart, as I have already mentioned. Say nothing and ask no questions until I have completed the story. Is that understood? She looked around the classroom and nodded to them in return, as they indicated they did. The sergeant sat on a high-backed stool like a throne, which placed her high above the students sitting on long wooden benches, and read from the book. She turned the pages, though she rarely looked at the book as she rehearsed the story. Keo relaxed and listened. The woman was magical, her voice transcendent. As she spoke, deeply intricate images came into his mind, illustrating her words. The complexity of her language and description added layers to the understanding on both the minute and grand scales. When she completed the story and asked, 
Now then, who heard me change to a different language? The majority of the trainees raised their hands. At what point in the story did you notice the change? The answers varied from shortly after she began to many in the middle, and most of the remaining by three-fourths the way through. The class discussed parts of the story where people said they last understood what was happening. How many of you never heard me change at all? Is there any? Please stand up. Keo stood and looked around the room. Four others rose with him. Bree Oakley, Nick Waterside, the enigmatic boy who had arrived on the latecomer's wagon, and two other girls. Impressive, Kolido Noshane, Night Song said. Are any of these your link leaders? Yes, Sergeant, two, Waterside and Oakley. Two very good choices, both foreign and strongly empathic. Thank you, you may sit. Both foreign? Bree definitely was, but Nick had said he was native to the capital and had only recently been traveling with his merchant father. Sergeant Nightsong, one of the trainees stood at attention and asked, I've always been told that only we, who are native to the Midlands, could have the creature empathy. Her laugh was light, but full and devoid of judgment. Do I look to you to be native to the Midlands? She asked, delight shining in her eyes. Before any could give the obvious reply, she said, Because a well is in one man's property does not imply that others cannot draw water, only that they are not allowed. Even those who live on the property will draw from the well in different amounts. All may draw some, if only a little. The sergeant climbed off her stool and walked to the door, opening it. The creature handler trainees are the most empathic of all the thirds coming into the king's service. This year, you are they. You wouldn't have been selected if you were not. For most of you, empathic contact will require practice. In the classes and in your instruction with others, remember to listen with all your senses and not just your ears. You are dismissed. As Keo led his corps from the classroom, he considered that he had chosen two of the strongest empaths in the corps for leadership. He assumed it must have something to do with his destiny. While he had always felt that Bree was an exceptional leader, he was pleased to find she was strongly empathic. Still, he would have to make a point to reassure the other two leaders that they were not in danger of being replaced by the two girls who were more empathic. Empathy was a skill required for a creature handler but not for a leader. He trusted all his choices, though he committed to spending more time getting to know Waterside. Without the lieutenant's gloomy presence to darken their lunch, Keo and the corps of C Company had the chance to eat a full meal. In fact, being under a training sergeant's direction for most of the day made life in the camp fairly pleasant, if not occasionally a little dull. It was before breakfast and after dinner that Gorley made his presence known. Regardless of whatever else was taught during the day, the final two hours every afternoon were spent in weapons training. After stretching and some quick calisthenics, they sparred with wooden slat sabers and shot blunt-tipped arrows at straw-filled targets. While Nick Waterside was highly empathic, he was inept with the bow. After firing all ten shafts into the sod on either side of the target, 
The training sergeant clapped the slender boy on the back and said, Not to worry, son. You'll have three years of weekly target practice before you're expected to shoot from the back of your creature. By that time, the only kids who can't hit the target with their eyes closed are those who choose not to. If the sergeant's encouragement helped the boy at all, Keo couldn't tell. Nick blushed with embarrassment and slumped his shoulders as he retrieved the arrows from the ground. Keo met him when he returned behind the firing line and said, What the sergeant said is true, you know. Besides, when we get our creatures, I've heard that by using the empathic link, our creatures will guide us and position us so we won't miss our targets. At this rate, I think that's the only way I'll ever hit anything, Nick said. The boy sounded so forlorn to Keo that he put his arm around his shoulder to give him an encouraging hug, as his father had done when he was young. Nick surprised Keo by shrugging away from his touch. He watched Nick as the boy placed the arrows into a holder near the bow racks and wandered away through the other trainees waiting their turn to shoot. Days that followed soon became routine and regular. Keo found the instruction interesting enough to hold his attention, and there were enough strong competitors to keep the physical activities challenging. However, in the second week of training, Lieutenant Gorley turned even sourer than before and started on them first thing one morning. Give your report, Gorley called. Each of the Corps leaders replied with, All trainees present. After the lieutenant passed the report on to the battalion commander, he turned back to his company. You have to be the slowest, raggedest, smelliest bunch of trainees we have ever seen in this training camp. You drag your sorry tails out here like you have all day, like no one is waiting on you, like you're the king and the queen with Lieutenant Gorley to wait on you. If you want to waste my time, I'll waste yours. This entire company will be last in the food line this morning and every morning until I think you move fast enough to deserve otherwise. Maybe if you stand by watching the other corps enter the food hall, you'll see what a proper corps looks like and acts like and model yourselves after them. Before he turned and walked back toward the officer billets, he called, Corps leaders, take charge of your units and march them to the food hall when all others have entered and exited. In order, Corps 1 through 4. Keo knew their corps weren't tardy in coming to formation, that every trainee was out and waiting on the lieutenant five minutes before he arrived. It didn't matter. Arguing with their commander would do little, and was most likely the response the man hoped for. Regardless, they would be wasting a lot of time waiting at the end of the food line. Judging from how fast the food line had moved in the past, Keo figured they would be at least a half hour before their first corps entered the food hall. Corps, on my command, fall out and get your practice swords, then report back to formation, Keo said, and called, fall out. Corps 1, 2, and 3 marched to the food hall and waited to get into line. When his unit was back in formation, Keo said, I realize that we all have different levels of skill at using the sword. We will all practice the drills our instructors introduced yesterday. Fortunately, Keo had learned the very same routines in the week he and Morden waited for creature selection to begin. Keo faced forward and led them in the drill. Ready, begin. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
With each count, they assumed the stance, thrust, or parry they had learned the day before. After ten minutes of practice, they took a short break and then began again, counting faster. Keo kept the count, but walked around the formation, looking for trainees who were vastly wrong. There were few who needed any correction. Wonderful, Keo said. Now, on my command, fall out, return your practice swords to your rooms, and form up for breakfast. That afternoon, at sword practice, their instructor saw the clear improvement over the day before and approached Keo. Corps leader? It might be my imagination, but it looks like your corps has been practicing the routine we ended the day with yesterday. Yes, Sergeant. We had some extra time this morning and spent a half hour practicing the routine. Very good. The sergeant smiled and nodded. Today, I'll advance you past the rest of the battalion. There's no sense teaching what you've already learned. The swordsmanship sergeant demonstrated another of the routines Keo had learned in the capital and asked, Do you know this routine already? Yes, sergeant. I do, but not my core. Good then. I'll work with those on this end. You go work with those on the other. Keo wished he could have stayed on the other end of the formation. Bree was down there and as he helped one trainee, standing behind her and supporting her arm to show her the proper way to hold the sword, it could have been Bree in his arms, instead of this girl. The thought surprised him. Did he care that the training sergeant had his arms around the orange-haired girl with the round, freckled face? Was he jealous? He respected her, that was true. She was very talented, as well as empathetic and intelligent. Keo shook himself. He wasn't paying attention to his work. He was daydreaming about a girl with whom he couldn't dance, hold hands, or steal a quick kiss. Any action he might take to make his daydream a reality would result in a charge of fraternization. He didn't know what his destiny was, but he knew it was too important to waste it all on a court-martial. At the end of the day, when the other companies had been released to eat their dinner or organize their personal gear, Lieutenant Gorley had Company C standing at attention, presumably for inspection. Rather than checking their ranks and files for straightness or their individual uniforms for cleanliness or proper fit, the lieutenant paced behind the company. With all eyes facing forward, he could have walked away entirely, leaving the chorus to stand at attention all night until he returned. Keel figured he was waiting and watching for someone to break formation. After what seemed like an eternity... The quiet evening air was suddenly cloven with the shrieks of a madman. Someone in the first corps had forgotten his place and scratched his nose. Resisting the urge to turn and see who the lieutenant was screaming at was challenging, and many of the company probably did, until their company commander dragged the offending trainee to the front of the formation and railed at Corps Leader Spinebeck for her incompetence as a leader. Dismiss your course for evening activities, Lieutenant Gorley said. Except I want this trainee and the corps leaders to remain here. Keo and the others dismissed their course. They weren't required to eat dinner as a company, so some went to the food hall while others bathed or cleaned gear and went later when the line was shorter. For the most part, they were left alone in the evenings to do as they wished. There was enough to do in the short time they had before bed to clean their rooms, repair clothes and gear, and straighten uniforms. If they weren't using their evenings wisely, it would show up in the morning formation. Keo made his way through the dispersing trainees to the others standing at attention in front of Lieutenant Gorley. 
As soon as he joined the others and came to attention, the lieutenant unloaded on him. If you think this entire camp waits on your presence, Corps Leader Noshani, Lieutenant Gorley paused and examined Keo's face as if he was trying to read something written beneath his skin. You would be wrong. You are here to do as I tell you, to wait upon my will, and to be where I want you before I even have to tell you. I didn't choose any of you as leaders, and I can get rid of any of you whenever I want. You will not receive a second warning, any of you. Do you understand? Yes, sir, they all agreed. Gorley walked in front of Spinebeck, leaned down to her, and glared into her eyes. I have a designate third who can't keep her corps at respectful attention for a single minute. He moved to the opposite end and bent forward again. Finding Keo was more of his own size, he brought his nose within a hair's breadth of Keo's and growled, and another common trainee who thinks he's King Glarence himself, strolling about, surveying his kingdom at his convenience. He turned his back on them and walked a few paces away. He gazed up at the sky for a long moment before he said, without turning around, If you want to waste my time and show me disrespect, I'll waste yours, though you may learn a thing or two. He turned back to them and said, You've been living the good life here, sleeping in as late as you want, only dragging yourselves out to formation, one before the sixes, until further notice, you are to be in formation, standing at attention, at one and a half before the sixes. If I see a single straggler making his way to formation after the appointed time, you'll all be getting up even earlier. I might even just keep you out here all night long. Am I understood? They all barked the reply that he was, and he released them. The four corps leaders watched the lieutenant cross the field to the officers' quarters. No one moved or spoke until he was out of sight. Then Crystal Spinebeck said, I'm sorry, it's all my fault. I should have, well, I shouldn't have, she huffed out through her nose and stomped her foot in frustration. Keo thought it was adorable and tried not to smile until she continued. I don't know what to do to keep that man happy. Keo knew they all shared her frustration and told her, It's hardly your fault. I think he was probably standing behind your core, just looking for a reason to come down on you. And then I added hay to his haystack when I didn't plow through the crowd, knocking people down just to get to him faster. He's probably back in his room enjoying a good laugh with himself at how he tormented the lot of us for no real reason at all. Spinebeck was as petite as she had been the preceding days, but to Keo, she didn't look like the small, frightened rabbit that she had when she first climbed off the latecomer's wagon. She was still a rabbit. No, no, she was more like a hare. Rabbits make their nests below ground where they can run and hide when danger approaches. Hares spend their lives above ground and escape their predators through cunning, camouflage, and speed. Court leader Spinebeck, you don't look too upset. In fact, I'd say you look happy, Keo said, letting a grin sneak onto his lips. It's amazing, Keo, Corps Leader Noshani. I've begun to feel like I just might get through this. I know it's only been a couple of weeks, and Lieutenant Gorley seems to have something against me, but everything else seems to be coming together. My link leaders are doing their jobs like I've asked them to. I walk through the barracks, and everything is clean and ordered. 
I know I won't come off as the most talented designate third ever to be selected as a creature handler, but there is status in that alone. There's more to being a creature handler than having a special status, Keo said, surprised to hear her opening up and hoping she would continue to talk. Oh, I know, she said. A dreamy, faraway look filled her eyes. Our empathy instructor was telling us of his relationship with his companion creature. Can you imagine touching another mind and having it respond to you with trust and compassion? Keo nodded. He could tell her all about it without having to imagine. But to do so might get him into trouble. Being a designate third is all about status and position. Trying to maintain what little status I have, I've never had anyone I could trust or feel close to, not even a brother or sister. The corners of her mouth suddenly turned down, and she curled in her lips, trying to control it. She was so small, she almost seemed like a little child, especially with the pouting frown warring with her lips. Though she was smaller than most of the others in the camp, she had the shape of a woman, which many of the girls had yet to develop. You couldn't trust your brothers or sisters? A sudden sob betrayed her. Regaining control of her voice, she said, No, not really. In truth, I rarely saw them. They remained with my parents when I was sent to my uncle's home. Is your uncle the designate? No, my aunt is, and there was no love between them. She gave my uncle the charge to raise the designate thirds, all of us children, gathered from her brothers and sisters and first cousins. He didn't want to raise us. He often told us that. We all knew he had no choice. Raise all of us children, or aunt would divorce him, or have him killed. Crystal spoke matter-of-factly, though her voice grew fainter until Keo had to step closer to hear. My aunt really wanted a niece to take her place, and I was the only girl. Naturally, there was a lot of competition with the nephews, who did all they could to make me look stupid or incompetent. They would frighten me as often as they could, or threaten to hurt me when scaring wasn't enough, and when threatening wasn't enough, they would hurt me. That's not good. Wouldn't your uncle stop them? Her small face turned bright red in an instant. Keo thought she would burst into tears or say nothing. Instead, she spoke through gritted teeth. I tried telling him once. He didn't believe me. He said I was lying, but because I claimed it, he made me punish them. He asked me, if I was designate, what would I do to them to match their crime? I wouldn't answer. He asked me what they had done, and I couldn't tell him. I was too embarrassed. He stared at me for a long time, and I started to cry. Very well, he said. All of you boys strip down naked. Crystal is going to whip you. No, uncle, not all of them, I cried. It was only the older boys, the ones older than me. There were some younger boys, but they had done nothing, and I didn't want to whip those little boys. That didn't matter. He gave me the whip, and I could see why. He pulled a peacock feather from his hat and said, Whip the boys with this. It's only appropriate. When the boys saw that I had a peacock feather in my hand, they all started laughing and taunting me with, Whip me, Crystal. Whip me, please. Make it hurt. They danced about naked, mocking me and covering themselves as if in embarrassment or for protection. Then there was Connell. He's the oldest and meanest of them all. He didn't cover himself. He thrust his hips at me, laughing so hard he was crying and saying, 
Please have mercy, Christy. Don't whip me hard. Keel wanted to comfort her, tell her he was sorry for what those boys had done to her. He put a hand on her shoulder, but just like Nick, she jerked away, as if burned by his touch. Startled, he pulled back and whispered, I'm sorry. Don't worry, they're not here. They can't hurt you now, he said, repeating himself and eventually reaching out slowly to stroke her shoulder as he would a skittish colt or a startled milking cow. He was acutely aware of where he stood and the fine line he trod. He wanted to hug her to him, to protect her like an orphaned lamb, and let her know all boys weren't cruel. But he knew that even this limited contact could be considered fraternization, especially to Gorley. Were there other nieces? Keo asked. Breathing heavily through her nose, she regained her composure. No, I was the only one, and obviously not the kind of girl my aunt would want for her heir. When I was selected to be a creature handler, she probably figured I'd cheated somehow to get out of my responsibilities. She laughed quietly to herself. Now I have more status as a creature handler than any of those rotting boys will ever have as a designate. There was so much about the designate system and how the thirds were raised in it that Keo didn't know that he wanted to keep Crystal talking to see if she would reveal more about it, about how it shaped her into who she is. He said, I think you have it right there. The designates will never know the wonders of companionship with a creature. But Kayleen thinks she's going to be a creature handler designate and officiate with a creature at her side. Crystal nodded, sniffed, and rubbed her nose with the back of her wrist. You can do it if you're ambitious, and the current designate really wants you badly enough. All Mandelbort Spinebeck wants from me is to fail so that he can get me back as a plaything for the rest of his thirds, or Valencina's thirds, I should say. He could have pulled enough strings to make me look bad if I had been in the military or civil service corps. It must be killing him that he can't touch me here. I'm sorry you had it so rough. It really isn't fair. Guidance and instruction are important, but you should be allowed to enjoy your childhood in security and safety. It would help you to grow into a more confident adult. Yeah, well, that's not the designate third way of doing things, and it's in the past now anyway, she said, and looked across the open parade grounds to the food hall. I'm going to eat. Do you want to come with me? He usually ate with Bree and the other link leaders. This girl was his peer, a fellow corps leader. He should eat with her to show others he knew his station and worked well within it. Sure, let's go. Neither saw Bree standing in the shadow of the barracks doorway. The four corps of Company C hustled from their cots as the first note of the call to rise rung out from the food hall bell tower. Keo lifted his lantern in each of the trainees' rooms to ensure his trainees had left them in a reasonable state of order before he followed his corps onto the parade ground. The company stood at attention, waiting on the bell tower's ring of half between the hours. Quarter till rang before Lieutenant Gorley made his presence known, and even though they were standing at attention long before the rest of the companies would exit the barracks, their company commander berated them for their tardiness and told them they would remain in formation until the three other companies had eaten their breakfast. Corps leaders, 
The company is in your hands until the evening meal, Lieutenant Gorley said, and crossed the field to his billets. Keogh's corps hurried to the barracks to get their practice swords. With an extra quarter hour, there would be plenty of time for sword practice. Keogh saw the other corps in the company were also returning to formation with their wooden swords. A few minutes into the routine, the third corps leader approached and Keogh stopped the practice. What are you doing? Himmler asked him. The weapon sergeant taught it to us yesterday, since we had the previous day's routine well rehearsed. Oh, we wanted to practice with you, but we don't know that routine yet, Himmler said and turned away. Himmler, Keogh called before the boy was too far away. The count is the same. Just lead them in what you learned yesterday. I would, Himmler said, but I don't know it well enough. Keogh looked across Himmler's corps. Many of their faces were turned toward them in the pre-dawn darkness. He asked, Do you think someone in your corps knows it well enough? Yeah, probably. You're the corps leader, but you don't have to do everything to be in charge. Call out someone who is capable and put that responsibility in their hands. Oh, right. Himmler left and was met by the other two corps leaders. After a moment, they went back to their own corps and began practice. The following morning went much as the preceding, Lieutenant Gorley being insulted and indignant over the company's slothfulness and the corps left with the better part of an hour for sword practice. This morning, the corps leaders were prepared with which routines would be practiced and who would lead them. That evening... As Lieutenant Gorley was about to dismiss the company for evening activities, he said, After I dismiss the company, I will speak with the corps leaders. The corps leaders sent their trainees on to dinner and other activities and hustled to line up before their commander at attention. Stand at ease, the lieutenant said. He spoke hesitantly, scowling and peering at the trainees with a look of suspicion. Speaking as if he didn't trust himself with his own words, he said, I was commended today by the battalion sub-commander for using my trainees' time most effectively by having them practice swordsmanship instead of standing idly in the line waiting to eat. Who told him of this without telling me is still a mystery. Since he and I have been in the officer's dining hall together each morning, he must have assumed I assigned you to carry out this activity without my direct supervision. After such a commendation, I would expect that the commander will come tomorrow morning to view this for himself. He paused, his signature scowl returning to his face. Do not embarrass me tomorrow morning or you will regret putting me into this uncomfortable situation. You are dismissed. Lieutenant Gorley charged away to the officer's quarters. Himmler frowned in confusion while Spinebeck went pale. The three corps leaders turned to Keogh. Okay, we need to make some plans if this is going to go well for us. Crystal, I mean, corps leader Spinebeck, since you're the first corps leader and the only designate third among us, you will need to be in charge. Me? I can't be in charge, she said, looking frantically between the other leaders. I hardly know the routines myself. Don't worry, it will be simple. You can hand the responsibility off to another with your first command. 
they discussed plans for another half hour and went back to their course to share the information, eat dinner, and prepare. The next morning, Lieutenant Gorley took report as he did each day. He didn't comment that they were slow coming out to formation. He couldn't have. The entire company was standing at attention 15 minutes earlier than any of the other companies in the battalion were expected to be on the parade grounds. Nor did he comment that each of the trainees stood at attention with their practice sword in hand. As he dismissed them, he only told them to use their time wisely and when the next formation would be. As he walked away, Corps Leader Spinebeck hurried to a place five feet directly in front of where the lieutenant had stood, came to attention, and called in a clear, high-pitched voice, Instructors, take your place and begin the instruction. She jogged back to the front of her corps, positioning herself ahead of and between the second and third link leaders, as did the second and third corps leaders when their instructors ran forward. Keo led the fourth corps at the far end of the company formation, closest to the officers' billets. Between the distraction of D Company marching past on their way to the mess hall and the darkness of pre-dawn, he could barely see a hundred yards away where Lieutenant Colonel Swillery returned Lieutenant Gorley's salute. The two watched C Company run through stretches and routines in the dim light of their four barracks porch lanterns. Watching from the corner of his eye, Keogh saw the two officers leave, passing behind his corps and disappearing into the darkness in the direction of the food hall. This was unexpected. If the officers were waiting along the road to the food hall, each corps leader would be expected to recognize them and show the proper respect. At the end of their exercise, corps leader Spinebeck strode out to the command position, dismissed the instructors, and dismissed the four corps to march to the food hall. Anxious for his friend's success, Keogh got lightheaded holding his breath for the diminutive corps leader. She needed to succeed more than any of the rest. Light from the mess hall flashed off the polished cane of her practice sword as she whipped it up in front of her in salute. Her tiny voice pierced the air. Officers recognized. Ready? Salute. All chins in her corps should have dropped to their chests in response. And then, Ready? Forward! as her sword disappeared from sight. Hopefully, she had given the officers enough time to return the salute. Regardless, Keo thought she had done pretty well. It was easier to hear and see the second and third corps did the same as they passed the officers. Lieutenant Colonel Swillery and Lieutenant Gorley stood in the dark with their professional disinterest masking their barely visible faces. Keo knew the only thing likely to change their expression would be for him to make a mistake, which they could take as an insult to their authority. He didn't want to do something which would bring their displeasure on his corps. Lieutenant Gorley didn't need any encouragement to punish them, but he also didn't want to leave the officers unmoved. As he reached the appropriate distance to call the salute, instead, Keo called, Corps, present! He waited a few extra beats to allow his corps members the full opportunity to remember what to do in response to the command, and finished with, Arms! The trainees drew their sword-slat blades from their scabbards, thrust their arms straight forward from the shoulder, the pommel gripped in their right fists, and held the blade up at a ninety-degree angle. 
Keel held his sword as an extension of his arm, straight and at a 75-degree angle. When Keo himself was within ten yards of the officers, he gave the same call as Corps Leader Spinebeck. Officers recognized, ready, salute, and held his salute until the officers returned it. Once he was sure the entire corps had passed the officers, he gave the command, ready, forward, and restore arms. At the mess hall, they stacked their practice swords in the prescribed formation, posted guards on them, and sent two trainees from each corps to the head of the food line. They would eat quickly and relieve those assigned to guard the swords. Keo approached Corps Leader Spinebeck. As they have told us over and over, it would be a breach of protocol for me to give you a hug, so I won't. You did a great job this morning. I could hear you down at my end, and I'm sure the battalion commander and the lieutenant heard you out in the field from where they were standing, Keo said when the four corps leaders met outside the mess hall. Spinebeck paled visibly and said, I didn't see them while we were practicing, so I thought they hadn't stayed to observe us. I wasn't very nervous until I saw them along the way to the food hall. I nearly fainted. I could hear you from the back, so you must have done okay, Keo said. I was watching, and she did great, Shanderly said. I think you're going to do fine here, Crystal. Your core's inside. You should probably go eat, Keo said. Crystal put a dainty hand on Keo's forearm and said, Thank you, Keo. You've been such a great help to me. Just knowing you were there gave me such courage. She went up on tiptoes as if to kiss him on the cheek and then remembered herself. Oh, she said, holding her fingertips to her mouth and looking away. I'm sorry, you're right. I'd better go eat. She hurried after her core. Shanderly pursed her lips and raised her eyebrows. Keo returned her look of chagrin and wished again that he could have been anywhere else besides in the rigid confines of training and able to follow through with Crystal's gesture of appreciation. Corps leader no shani? Keo heard the lieutenant call from behind. Keo spun around and came to attention, snapping his chin to his chest in salute. He said, Yes, lieutenant. Stand at ease, corps leader, Gorley said, walking around him. Keo listened to his commander walk around behind him and stop grateful that the sub-commander was nowhere in sight. You're a show-off, Noshani. He waited in silence for the lieutenant to say more. You have no response? The man finally added. No, sir, he said, feeling it wiser not to argue. I thought so. Gorley walked back to face Keo. You know you're a boot polisher and you can't deny it. No, sir, Keo said again. I'm just trying to do my best. Colonel Swillery was impressed, but you don't fool me. You think you can play by your own rules. You'll wake up with a bump one of these days when your game is not my game, when your rules don't match my rules. Then you'll find yourself buried with me holding the shovel and no one to dig you out. I'm watching and I'm waiting for that day. The company commander turned and strode away. Keo snapped to attention and waited until the officer was 20 paces away before he turned back to his core. (music) 
Thank you for listening to the Pariah Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you could help me out by going to iTunes and leaving a review, I'd love you for the rest of my life. Any kind of feedback to an author, producer, is more sustaining than food and water. If you'd like to know what else I've written, or am writing, stop by my website at norvaljoe.com or like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash philipcarrollauthor. Philip with one L, Carol with two R's and two L's. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.